Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. On today's Power Hour, we're going to interview Craig Idso, who's founder and chairman of the Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change. And I won't give much of an intro uh, because the topic we're going to talk about, I think, sells itself. It is the positive benefits of CO2. And I'll have a lot to say about this after the interview and, and, and during the interview uh, because I've already had it. And uh, I had one one really big takeaway, which I indicate during the interview, but we'll we'll talk about even more after. But but suffice it to say, I think Dr. Udso's perspective is fascinating and necessary, and this has been one of the most educational interviews for me personally, just just to conduct it. So I hope you benefit from it, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Dr. Craig Idso, Chairman of the Center for Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change. Craig, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. All right. So I want to talk about your extremely interesting research on uh, impacts of atmospheric CO2 that most people never talk about, particularly positive impacts. But you have a very interesting family history in this debate. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your family background in this debate? You bet. Uh, my father, his name is Sherwood Idso. Uh, he was a research physicist, and he worked for the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture in their water conservation laboratory in Phoenix, Arizona. And for a number of years, he studied the climatic impacts of CO2 on the atmosphere and so forth. And and then uh, later on in his career, he kind of switched and started working on the biological impacts of CO2, how it would impact plants and and uh, nature and animals and ecosystems and so forth. And so I pretty much grew up with this issue. In fact, uh, when I was in high school, my father had the longest continuously running CO2 enrichment experiment in the world that was going on in the Phoenix desert where he was growing sour orange trees uh, under regular air and then air that was enriched with carbon dioxide. And so I, I got to take part in that experiment and various other ones that he did. And learned firsthand the, the benefits of CO2 and then just kind of followed in his footsteps thereafter. Um, and now looking back, I, I don't know his exact record, but just looking a little bit at the overview of his research, he has papers on CO2 and climate going back to at least 1980. Has he, what have you learned about the state of the debate back then? Because, you know, for most of us, we see it as a much more modern issue, maybe beginning with Jim Hansen's testimony in 1988, or, or even a lot of people for Al Gore's movie in 2006. That's, that's a great point. It, this issue has been going on for decades, and it would surprise many people, I think, to, to learn that. Uh, the first paper my dad published on this issue was probably back in the late 1970s when he published a, a paper in Science Magazine. And back in the, the mid-1970s, kind of the issue of the day was global cooling. Temperatures had basically been cooling across the globe from 
it's a peak in about 1930, 1940, and they cooled all until about 1976, 1977. And so global cooling was kind of the rage, and people were very concerned about the impacts of the, the lower temperatures on crop yields and so forth, and you know ice advancing, glaciers advancing, and but uh, that all that all began to change in the mid 1970s. Temperatures started to level off and, and rise, and carbon dioxide concentrations, of course, had been continuously increasing since the Industrial Revolution, and and uh, really kind of just started taking off at that point. And it was really based upon these computer models, and the computer models at the time were just in their infancy, and. Uh, they were predicting these large increases of temperature that we would see in the next 50 to 100 years of as much as 10 degrees Celsius. And I mean, that, that's almost unbelievable, and, and, it, and it really was. And so that's kind of how my dad started getting involved in, in the debate there and, and showing that the models were just not, uh, you know, just, they were just models. They weren't really uh, tuned to reality or capable of, of projecting climate into the future. One more question about that period. What what was it like, to your knowledge, for people to have this this 180 degree switch in direction, and yet the it, it's viewed as negative either way? And it seems like a very jarring thing. You would think, oh, it turns out it's not cooling. Good news, given that you hear cooling yeah. is bad, but then it's cooling is bad, warming is bad. The only thing they have in common is man's allegedly doing them. Yeah, and. It I think it's almost human nature to always see the negative in things as opposed to the, the positive. It's it's easy to focus on the scare stories and things like that. And there's many reasons for that. I think funding is a big one. How you know if it uh, if if something's bad or potentially bad, then certainly as a society we want to invoke the precautionary principle and and try to ward it off. So I think a lot of that in, was related to the change. But it really did take several years, if not a decade or more for the paradigm to shift from global cooling to global warming. Again, global cooling was really in control in the 70s, but it really wasn't until uh, James Hansen's 1988 appearance you know, in Congress where it really flipped the switch and global warming became in vogue, and, and uh, then everybody was pretty much on the bandwagon by that, by that point on. So at what point, just in terms of your own timetable, when did you start to study these issues? Um, well, again, I, I, I guess I kind of grew up with it, and so all through high school, helping him out on his various projects, but then going into to my research in the, the 1990s, uh, I did some several studies and so forth on, on the benefits of CO2 and also on climate and agriculture, and, and uh, just kind of took off from there. I, I didn't intend, you know, I, I, I run a nonprofit uh, organization, as you mentioned, the Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change, and I didn't intend initially to to do that. I wanted to work in academia. I love teaching and so forth. And I started this when I graduated with my PhD. I, I thought, you know, this is a ridiculous issue, all this concern over carbon dioxide and climate change. I thought, well, I'll just run this little institute and highlight the papers that are published in the peer review each week and show that it's really not a problem. And I figured, you know, I'd only do that for a couple of years. <laughs> the debate would be over and I'd happily, you know, assume a, a position in academia. But I couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, this 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 issue has taken a life on its own, and the tentacles stretch all across several disciplines and into politics and so forth. And just you know, here here we are, uh, 16 years later since I started that, and still can't believe I am where I am. Yeah, well, that that I think you said ridiculous, which I think I think is a a good word for it. And 
it's something that's hard for people to take because there's there's so many voices on the side that we might characterize as as ridiculous. But it, in one aspect of being ridiculous that pertains to your research is that you know if we if you just sort of had a basic education about CO two like what you know what you know about CO two that it's plant food and you're sort of told okay you're going to wake up one morning there's going to be like 0.04% CO2 in the atmosphere instead of 0.03, your sort of first reaction, I imagine, would be, oh, well, plants will like that, just if there had been a bunch <laughs> more food on the ground, right? You just woke up one day, there's 33% more food. First thing is, oh, well, that, that, that would be good. And, of course, That's, you know, plants are our food. Exactly. Exactly. You, you know, and that is kind of surprising that, that uh, we look at CO2 or society as a whole generally looks at CO2 in a negative now when it used to be considered such a positive. In fact, we, we refer to carbon dioxide as the elixir of life because it truly is. You need carbon dioxide. You need it as you learned in fifth grade, your fifth grade science class, like you said. You know, you learn CO2 is, is plant food. The plants utilize it in the process of photosynthesis to actually construct their, their tissues to grow. And without it, they die. You know, at a certain concentration level about you mentioned we're about 0.04 or we're about 400 parts per million. That's kind of how we, we talk about it as you know, how many molecules in the atmosphere? We're about 400 molecules of CO2, CO2 per, per million molecules. And if you drop it down to about 180 to, well, 150 to, sorry, I should say about really about 120 to 150, you start to get some plants actually die. They die because they cannot subsist without that CO2. And, and, and it's interesting because the Earth has oscillated over the past million years and more with these glacial the interglacial cycles where you'll have about 90 to 100,000 years of, of really cold temperatures and then about 10 to 15,000 years of a nice warm period. And the CO2 concentration oscillates during those periods as well. So we, it, it, it goes from about 180 parts per million during these cold interglacial periods to about 270 during the uh, warm interglacial periods. And then, of course, now it's risen from the Industrial Revolution. But the point I'm trying to make is that during those ice ages, we're dropping down to 180 ppm or 180 parts per million, which is getting close to that that point where plants will start to die, you know, at 100, 120 ppm. So, you know, the extra CO2 that, that we get as the world, world goes out from the ice ages into the interglacials, it provides a great spurt of growth for vegetation across the planet as it goes, as it rises from 180 to 270. And then as we've gone from 270 parts per million, to where we are today at 400, it's provided a great additional benefit. And as we go from 400 parts per million to 700 parts per million by the end of this century, we'll experience an additional anywhere from 30 to 55% increase in productivity for most plants just because of extra rise in CO2. So again, that, that makes perfect sense just on a, on a common sense basis, just the, the, the basic thing we at least should learn about CO2. And yet it's it's striking that when we learn that uh, the reason I put it, by the way, in terms of percentage, in terms of parts per million, is I think parts we often think in terms of percentage, and people do parts per million because it sounds bigger if you're not a professional uh, scientist. Whereas if you say 0.03 percent, somebody has an they have a, they can visualize that. Whereas parts per million, it's, yeah, that's they, a good point. They, sure, they they can't. Um, it's it's just interesting that that the first thought in people's mind is not oh that'll be good for plants. And because the way it's been characterized, the first thing that's on people's mind is, oh my gosh, it, it must be bad. 
because it's created by man. And yet, if we look at every other realm, if we look at agriculture in general, industrialized agriculture made there be much more food. We have much more safety from climate, especially as Indira Goklani's research has shown. It's not as if nature gives us a perfect environment. So why are we assuming that we were given a perfect concentration of atmospheric CO2, especially because it can naturally go to very low levels? That, that's a great point. What is the optimum climate? What is the optimum concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? And, you know, we live in such a narrow time slice, geologically speaking. I mean, we're here for, what, 70 to 85 years, something like that, of the human lifespan, and we're gone. And, and that's nothing compared to how the CO2 concentration oscillates over geologic time. I mean, it's been at, at, at you know, 1,000, 2,000, as much as, as 4,000 parts per million in the geologic past. And plants and animals and everything survived very well during the Cretaceous period and so forth uh, at higher CO2 concentrations. But, but you're right, uh, we tend, or, or some people tend, to associate all of these things in a negative, with a negative connotation. You know, they call CO2 a pollutant. They call it carbon pollution. I just hate hearing that term because it's nothing could be further than the truth when they, they talk about it in the quantities that we're dealing with now. It's not carbon pollution. You know, they, global warming, they, they, they try to say, suggest warming is a bad thing, you know, as opposed to climate change. And they'll focus on extreme weather, uh, you know, that sort of thing, as opposed to, you know, just the average of conditions and so forth. But, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how society tends to focus on those other things. The, the mention of, of the periods with higher concentrations of CO2 is really interesting to me, and I, I don't feel knowledgeable enough about it. Can you talk a little bit more about how plant life and animal life thrived and what the implications are for species like ours that wasn't around back then, but you know, what, 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 what's evidence about how we could survive were, you know, say, CO2 concentrations at 1,000 or 2,000? Yeah, and, and, and to preface this, uh, my father has also conducted some experiments years ago where he grew uh, different kinds of plants all the way out to concentrations of 1,000 and 2,000 parts per million, and he would see a linear increase. There was a linear increase in growth all across this range, which suggests that even if we burned all of the fossil fuels that we had access to right now on the planet, we wouldn't raise the concentration to a little over 1,000 parts per million. So if we did all of that, we would still see this great increase in growth, a linear increase in growth of plants over that entire period. But so, so how does CO2 benefit? How does CO2 benefit these plants? Well, it, it really happens. There's three main facets behind this. And number one, as, as you increase the CO2 concentration, plants tend to increase their productivity. Again, as we talked about before, it's, it's food for plants. And so at higher CO2 concentrations, they're just able to do everything better. They produce more. They have greater biomass. And what that translates into is, is most plants, most herbaceous plants, crops, things like that, the non-woody plants, as you have a 300 part per million increase in CO2, again, that's what we expect will occur over the course of this century. So we, we expect to see about a 25 to 55% increase in productivity for those plants. Now, trees, it's actually higher trees experience about a 75% increase in their productivity for a 300 part per million increase in CO2. So that's the first major benefit, just this increase in productivity. The second major benefit that CO2 imbues on these plants is it helps them to, uh, they're able to use less water to produce the same amount of tissue. So we call that 
their water use efficiency. They're more efficient at using a lower amount of water to produce the same amount of tissues. And in fact, they actually need, studies show they need about half as much water under a doubling of, uh, under a 300 part per million increase in CO2 than they do at uh, normal air. So that's a great benefit. And, th and that happens because at higher CO2 concentrations, you have these little openings called stomata on plants, stomata. And these stomata, they basically have, they, they basically close their stomata. They have, few, sometimes they have fewer stomata, and then but most of the time they, they don't open them as widely. So they don't lose as much water out of their tissues to transpiration, or basically the plant sweating as the heat goes. So that's the second major benefit, the increase in plant water use efficiency. And then the third major benefit, which is really another incredible benefit, and that is under higher CO2 concentrations, plants, numerous studies have shown that plants are much able to deal with various environmental constraints and resource limitations that exist in nature. What do I mean by that? Uh, high, high temperatures is an environmental constraint. Some plants just can't grow. They die at higher temperatures. Well, studies show that at higher temperatures, plants are able to increase their optimum level of photosynthesis and survive and thrive. And in fact, they actually thrive and enjoy the warmer temperatures. And that's why during periods like the Cretaceous, where we talk about you have a lot, you know, high CO2 concentrations, there's a variable garden across the earth uh, with just plants just growing like gangbusters. Well, that's one reason to explain that because they enjoy, they like, and they thrive under that higher CO2 under that higher temperatures at these higher CO2 concentrations. And so, and there's a, you know all sorts of other resource limitations like low nitrogen and so forth, um, uh, high soil salinity. Under all these different conditions, at higher CO2, plants just grow better. I mean, the the second and it's it's almost comical what the view of CO2 is because uh, I've debated a lot of these guys, including Bill McKibben, and one of the things they always stress is is drought, and you know, we're not going to have any more plants basically because of it. And and just as a folk, uh, as somebody who specializes in energy, my focus is on well, just the obvious benefits of mechanized agriculture and and the, the fact that we have many many as as CO two is increasing because fossil fuel use is increasing, we have vastly, vastly more food and vastly more adaptability. But what you're pointing out is even that the byproduct that's supposedly negative, in fact, makes them amazingly more uh, conserving of water and more and, and far more, um, uh, let's say, adaptable than, than you could ever expect in terms of any w damages from warming. They would, it's just a really striking phenomenon. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. I live in Phoenix, Arizona, in the American West, and we all know that the Western United States don't tend to get as much water. It's water limited, and it's it's also hot. So, you know, under those two conditions where it's water limited and it's hot, as the CO2 concentration has risen, we we expect that we should have seen over the last 100, 150 years an increase in plant growth in these regions just because of that CO2. And it's really neat because... Many researchers have, have, have conducted studies. I've conducted various studies looking at, uh, for example, I've taken repeat for t uh, photographs where you, you can go back and you find pictures that people took in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where then years later or, or decades later, someone has gone back and snapped a picture at the identical vantage point, same location, and you see the difference in vegetative growth over that time period, incredible growth. And you, you do, you find that. So in these areas where it's hot and dry, we see a great increase 
in uh, vegetative growth. And uh, it's, it's exactly what we expect as the CO2 constant rises. Now, it's also important to point out that we actually document these things. We conduct these experiments in laboratories where you can raise the CO2 concentration and, and grow plants under various temperature regimes and resource-limited regimes and so forth. And we can see these benefits. And it's been done literally thousands of times. On our website, we have a section where we archive all these studies, and there's literally thousands of them that have been conducted by scientists showing these benefits. And so they're real. I mean, they're, they're tangible. They're real. Now, you, flip, you compare that with what is being said about the climate. That is all based on computer models. Very little of it's based on, on data. And where the data do exist, they don't conform or they generally don't, don't agree with the model projections. So on the one side, you have a theory put forth of climate change decimating you know, the planet um, because of CO2, which is speculative, highly speculative, and, and not proven. Whereas on the other hand, you have another theory that says that that carbon dioxide is good for plants and we expect this great vegetative greening of the earth and proliferation of, of species and so forth and, and we find that that's actually sustained and, and uh, supported by the literature. It is striking the contrast between a, you know, a dramatic causal relationship and, and no established causal relationship in terms of uh, catastrophe or anything re resembling that. What are the arguments against your view? What do, you, what do you hear most often? Because there is just, again, there's a straightforward expectation, more CO2, more plant food, more plant growth. There must be some, some reason people give, oh, no, it's not that way. In fact, it's much worse for plants. Well, it, a lot of the reasons are, are kind of what you already alluded to. Um, they'll say, well, the temperatures are going to rise too fast and too furious that, that plants aren't going to be able to handle it. And again, that is absolutely incorrect. The data we try every time we hear that claim, we try to point out and show that that actually that remember I talked about that optimum temperature for photosynthesis. That's the, the the plants that they wish they could be at because they they actually grow most efficiently at that temperature. Well, that optimum temperature actually increases with CO2, and it will increase by a greater degree than what is predicted uh, by models for the temperature to rise. So it will never be a problem. It will never be a problem. And as far as you know, they often claim, well, that's all well and good, but species are going to go extinct. You know, you, they just can't handle it. It's going to be too fast, too furious. Well, again, you look at the literature and you find that it's absolutely not correct because, because of that optimum temperature uh, for plants being increased at higher CO2, they have no impetus to move. There's no reason for them to, to migrate to these, these cooler regions. And, in fact, what you end up seeing is that because the temperature warms, they will migrate because they enjoy the warmer temperatures. They'll, they'll shift that edge of their boundary at the warm edge of its boundary. They'll, I mean, sorry, at the cool edge. They'll keep the boundary at the warm edge, but at the cool edge, they'll actually expand as it warms. So you'll actually see a greater overlapping of species, and, uh, you know, which actually hints to greater biodiversity and so forth. So, so, but that's one of the major claims. And then you you know, you get, well, you're going to have droughts and floods and all this, that, and everything will happen, and super hurricanes. And, but again, you can just point back to the actual climate data and say, no, that's, that's not happening. There really is this view that the climate that we're given that's unaffected by us is perfect. So it's, it's just fascinating to think of climate as something that overall can be improved by our actions. And it, it seems very fortunate that we picked a source of energy that has this 
enrichment byproduct, which was not the intention, but is, is this dramatic benefit. Yeah. Yeah, we really can't uh, do much about climate other than on a local scale, not globally. I mean, on a local scale, we do influence climate somewhat. Uh, think about, I live again, I live in Phoenix, and uh, Phoenix was a desert, still is, but before everybody came, there was no concrete, no buildings, things like that, and now we have miles of it, and of course, concrete absorbs a lot of energy and heat, and it traps it in and doesn't release it as quickly as you know as a normal uh, surface. And so you get this massive heat island, for example, where temperatures in Phoenix uh, in the city center might be as actually in the wintertime, they're about 10 degrees higher than they are on the outskirts. So, so you can influence climate locally and at different time periods, but globally, the atmosphere is such such a big uh, big world, big place that you know, it's just the data just don't show that we have really much of an influence there at all. Now, now I'm not saying that there is no influence of carbon dioxide. There certainly is an influence of carbon dioxide on climate. It's just my belief and my feeling and all my research suggests that temperatures will have only a, a slight increase. You might only expect a, maybe a half a degree Celsius increase in CO2. And, and that's even a big if because there's numerous forcings and feedbacks that exist in nature that could actually counter that rise in CO2. Uh, a rise in temperature. Sorry. Another another venue where this controversy exists that that your organization has done work on is is the ocean. The idea that the ocean is becoming acidic, which is the usual precision of this crowd, since it's obviously basic and becoming less basic, as I think you say in some of your work. But uh, what's what's the can you relate the controversy over the ocean to the controversy over the atmosphere? Because particularly in the latest IPCC report, they're not just talking about acidification, but they're saying, oh, maybe the heat disappeared into the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And there's and that heat disappearing into the ocean is, is, again, based on models for the most part. We don't have measurements in the deep ocean and so forth. It's basically just a, a theoretical construct of models, and it's, it's not supported by the most recent data. Um, there, it's also important to know that you do have these basic oscillations in climate occurring at various time scales, and uh, they occur uh, semi-annually, annually, uh, decadally, centennially, millennially. They're occurring at all these different time scales, and so it's really important to have long-term data sets before you can discern what truly is happening. And, and that's really the case with ocean acidification as well. Uh, and I'm just going to refer to it as that as you correctly pointed out uh, the ocean is not acidic it is still basic and it, and it will be for as for as long as we know and we'll never be able to make it acidic due to co2 but i just like i just use that term i don't have a problem with using it whereas some do but anyway ocean acidification it's it, it's kind of it's the whole theory of ocean acidification is really a microcosm of what's happening with the entire global change debate what happens is you have a scare story put out a scare story is put out, the press runs with it, and everybody publicizes it, and it's gloom and doom. And then what happens, it takes science, real scientists, maybe decades, years if not decades, to go and provide the hard physical data that is needed to evaluate the claims. And what, what's, just as what's happened with the global, whole global warming climate claims is they, one by one, have been picked off and shown not to be true, the same thing is really beginning to happen to ocean acidification. And, 
and it really kind of shows the mantra of the climate alarmists. They start with one thing, when it gets disproven, they go on to the next, the next scare story. And that's what's happened. Ocean acidification a few years ago was the latest scare story. We had scientists and professors claiming that within uh, a decade or more, uh, coral reefs would be completely gone. And, you know, of course, they generate great headlines and probably got a lot of funding from government sources, but uh, the real scientists came in and they began to study the issue and, and they found that that uh, it's really not the great behemoth that it's made out to be. And in some cases, uh, the ocean acidification issue is actually beneficial to marine plants and marine animals. And and I don't know if we, how much you want me to go into how that actually works and, and, and why, but if you do, I can. Well, it's interesting at least just to have, again, the I the idea that it could be any given change could be net beneficial or net harmful and that there's a real dogma in assuming that it's bad. So if you say the ocean is less basic, I, I, you know, absent specific knowledge and systematic study, how do I know whether that's better or worse or not that big a deal? And just generally being familiar with the history of the world, I generally expect that things will adapt and we used to believe in evolution and adaptation, but now we believe in this this perfectly fragile ocean and climate, and if anything changes, it's the end of the world. Yeah, and I love, I love the whole idea of evolution and adaptation because that really shows how resilient the planet is. And, and there are, there are numerous studies that show it. And it used to be feared that, that these changes, again, will happen so rapidly, you know, pick your poison, whether it's droughts or floods or super hurricanes or ocean acidification, it would... It all dealt with that. All these things are going to be so fast and so furious that we just can't adapt, and we're we're going to die unless we, you know, our species will die unless we, you know, quickly capitulate right now and and follow the, you know, what they want us to do. But and stop emitting CO2. But you know, the reality is is that is uh, animals and plants are highly resilient, and whereas it, the prevailing wisdom and thought was that it would take, if you know thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands to millions of years for some species to adapt and evolve. Uh, many studies that we have, we have looked at have shown, or others have conducted but we have reported on, have shown that you can have adaptation and evolu- even evolution taking place on, a, on, on as few as 10 or 12 generations on insects and so forth and traveling on upward in the, in the, in the food chain, um, which is very significant, very, very significant. You know, we have genes, or animals and plants have genes that uh, would appear to be dormant, but are there for a reason. They're there because they have adapted and evolved over climate swings and and and, and so forth that have that have occurred over billions or, or millions of years, if not billions. And so, you know, they're they're able to they're able to survive. They're able to adapt, and that's that's what you find in these ocean acidification studies. That that yeah. Uh, sometimes you might get a little bit negative response, but it, the response begins to go away and becomes advantageous uh, really quickly as some of these genes kick in and the, these animals and organisms begin to, to utilize what uh, they haven't needed to utilize uh, in centuries and, and thousands of years past. Uh, I want to ask about your work with the NIPCC. On this show, we've discussed the IPCC and, and generally been critical of it, I think, for good reason. Uh, you were involved, uh, at least as far as I know, in the first NIPCC report. What is the NIPCC and what, what got you involved in it? Yeah, the, the, the NIPC, we, we call it the NIPC, and NIPCC works fine, uh, is the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change. 
And it really is, it's basically composed of a group of international scientists who've come together to really explain and, and deal with uh, the projected consequences and causes of climate change. And it really kind of, Fred Singer, uh, who's a scientist, a very good friend uh, with the Science and Environmental Policy Project, got together a group of scientists many years ago, over a decade ago, uh, in a meeting where the fourth assessment of the of the IPCC was going to be coming out. And uh, as the previous assessments had progressively gotten worse and more alarmist, uh, we felt, this group of scientists felt that it more likely would be the case that the fourth assessment would be, be even more alarmist as well and, and really not based on all the data that's available out there. And so we got together and and tried to figure out what we could do and kind of the there's several other meetings that took place but long story short the outgrowth of that was that in 2009 uh, the NIPSI published with the Heartland Institute was the was used as our publisher uh, we published this basic rebuttal to the IPCC's fourth assessment and uh, it was very well received it it really conclusively showed that the IPCC is highly selective in what they're reporting and in, in coming to their conclusions that they make with respect to climate in the biosphere. And uh, so the NIPSI, over the years, we, we just continually strive to summarize what's being published in the peer-reviewed science. It's not an original work in the sense that we are summarizing what other scientists have already concluded and are publishing in the literature. So that way we can, we can conclusively show, look, you guys in the IPCC are missing these important studies, and then they can't come back to say, and say to us, oh, well, you're just saying that because you're skeptics. No, we're not saying that. It's these scientists who have published these reports are saying that. And there's many, many scientists that, that uh, publicly, although they might not come out and say they, they disagree with the IPCC, they certainly in their, in their uh, research uh, are publishing material that does not support the conclusion and the tenets that the IPCC utilizes. What's, what's been your experience with just the, the intellectual climate of all of this? And, and I imagine that your father has had, just, just from what I've read, has had interesting, so to speak, experiences as well, because you, are, you, know, you have a, a clear viewpoint and you have reasons for it, and yet it, it goes against the, the, the views, but even really the, the justification for many people's careers. Yeah, yeah, there's no... Yeah, there, there's really no way that uh, I can get a job in academia today. You know, simply, that's, that's just the way it is. Uh, once you're a skeptic and labeled a skeptic, you are ostracized in, in much of the scientific community. It's unfortunately a very polarizing debate. And uh, I, you know, I think it really came that way in the 1980s with, when Al Gore, I think he was the one who really politicized it, unfortunately, and made it a, a political debate. But that is translated down, and scientists are very polarized on this issue. And and if you don't toe the academic line, if you don't toe the political line at the time, you will be ostracized. You will not receive funding. You will not receive appointments. You will not receive grants. Um, it's, it's a very difficult world. So you'll have many scientists that, although feel like we do, have told us personally that, hey, we love what you do. Um, we want to be involved in the NIPSI, but we can't have our name associated on this because of the fear of retribution that we have for our own careers. And so a lot of times you'll get the scientists that have, have finished their careers that will then begin to speak out and, and on this issue because they don't have the worries that they had when they you know, were dependent upon, uh, upon their, their, their current jobs. 
but yeah, it's a it's it's a real phenomenon. It does exist, um, and it's unfortunate. It really we really should base this debate on the science, and that's what we try to do. We stay away from the ad hominem attacks. We like everything that we do, like in the NIPSI, we provide peer-reviewed scientific references supporting what we say. We actually pull out original quotations from the authors used in their studies describing what their study means and the implications of it. And if you don't believe what we're saying, we give you the full reference. Go look it up. You can find the paper and find out for yourself that, that uh, you know, what we're reporting on is true. You know, one, one thing when I, I, I speak to scientists who, who question catastrophic global warming is that there's much more of an attention to detail and to nuance than, than many of the public proponents. Not, not just Al Gore, but people like James Hansen and Michael Mann and people with real scientific credentials. What's your experience of the other side just in terms of, um, I guess, lack of, lack of precision? That's, what's, that's what strikes me, where they're, just, they're willing to say these very broad things that even they know are not quite accurate or yeah. representative. Well, I think it's a great disservice to science, number one, because they just, you know, many, many of those people you mentioned, they will, they'll come out and set out these claims. Oh, the sky is falling. You know, global warming is coming. Expect temperatures to rise at this massive amount, large deaths in human populations from heat waves and things like that. And they've been so vocal publicly. And, of course, they're, base, they're basing this material on climate alarmist projections made from models. And then, as, it, as I mentioned, it takes sometimes years for the actual data and scientific, you know, the real scientific work to, to come through. Because when you conduct a study as a scientist, then you conduct a study. First, you have to go get funding. And that might take a year to get the funding. And then you conduct your analysis, which you know, could take anywhere from six months to a couple of years. And then you sit and you write up the paper, which might take another four to six months because you have several co-authors, and then you submit it to a journal. The journal submits it out to reviewers. That entire review process can take another year. So it literally could be anywhere from four to six years after the initial scare story comes out before the scientific community is able to respond to it. So what happens over that four to six years? Well, you know, they're continually hammering their claims and so forth, and they're getting away with it. But then when the actual data come out, uh, they start to be silenced, and then they move on to the next scare story because the other one has been, has been uh, defeated. And all what happens, you know, uh, the general public, we're not stupid. The general public is not stupid, and they realize that these claims are not coming true. And so what happens is they're... You know, they just they look at the science and wonder, you know, what is really happening, and they just think, well, these scientists are a bunch of idiots and so forth, and they don't know anything, and so they tend to not believe in any science. So, it it really is a disservice to science what they're doing, coming out with those you know large claims and and continuing to to scare people and so forth without having the data to support it. You should have the data first. I, as far as I know, the scientific method works. You have a theory, you test it and you prove it, and then you report your results, whether or not it's been proved or disproved. You don't come out and claim the end result in the beginning. Well, how does, how does that comport with the funding process? Because, I mean, you have you know, the IPCC, I guess that's not a funding agency, but the ICC has a mandate to figure out policies to counter human-caused 
problematic climate change. It's not like it's it's a climate investigation organization. I mean, it's a policy organization that has a specific. It, yeah, and that's so the, are the major government flaw agencies. of the IPCC. That's the major flaw of the IPCC. They're not looking for the truth. They're looking. They're as you said. They're looking to find information on how CO2 affects the climate negatively. That's exactly what they do. Yet they claim to be balanced. Their IPCC reports actually claim to be the most comprehensive and balanced reports that exist out there. But yet that's absolutely not true. Like you said, they focus on the negative. They have a mandate to look at the negative, and so they ignore the positive. And of course, all the funding goes there. And the IPCC, they have almost a, a limitless amount of funds as well. I mean, they have, uh, they're the UN. They get funding through the UN. And then, then the whole climate alarmists, they get fun. They get billions of dollars a year. You know, you asked me a while ago, what 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 do some other scientists use as the argument against you? Well, it's generally not science. They'll come out and say, oh, you're just a shrill for the the uh, the in, for industry. You know, you don't really believe any of that stuff, and you're just you're just a shill for them. But that's absolutely how they operate. Um, they don't recognize that they themselves that the skeptics have very little funding. In fact, I, and I'm not for the official record. I'm not industry. I don't follow industry. I believe what I believe based on the data. But um, anyway, they you know they have billions of dollars at their disposal. The U.S. gives multi you know ten twenty billion dollars a year to this that goes to the national laboratories, the universities, and so forth. And so there really is no impetus for them to stop saying the things that they're saying. Some of these alarmists they want to keep it going. It's a scare story. The U.S. will pay. It keeps them in their in their uh, hundred and hundred to hundred and fifty thousand dollar a year salaries at these universities where they only have to teach one or two courses a year and uh, so I, it's very difficult it's, it's a it's a messed up system it really is yeah we could talk for a long time about the money accusation I, mean, I think the money is most important most important clearly with the alarmists but particularly because it's connected to power and prestige. It's not that I think that well, Michael Mann just you know sees dollar signs if you flash him two hundred thousand dollar grant or something like that. But the whole government finance system is what gives you power and prestige if you advocate one view and takes it away if you don't. And that means if 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 you have some love of science, it's really hard to have a career. And that's a much yeah. bigger motivator than like that. That's a much bigger negative motivator towards saying the truth than it is than it would be a motivator to just you know, hand you 500 grand. Like, I don't think most scientists, even the ones who I think are bad, I don't think that would motivate them that much. I think the whole power prestige thing is what motivates them as well as just the whole debate starts out skewed and they're miseducated and they think about things incorrectly from the beginning. Yeah, and I, I should say too, and add uh, that I do feel and know that there are scientists on both sides of this issue that are just in it for the science that you know they truly feel and believe that it's one way or the other based upon what they've been exposed to their data and so forth uh, but there's also some on probably both sides as well that it's a money trail it's a power thing as you suggest and uh, unfortunately those are the ones who are winning the day in this entire debate um, well there's something else I was gonna ask I mean in terms of the well, I forgot. I, I forgot my question there. But um, in terms of, let's see. So we've got yeah, money. The, the point I was just making was money is 
I think money is misunderstood and is this sort of, there's this general anti-capitalist bias that makes people think, oh, if money is involved, that's going to corrupt. But, but power and prestige and practice with my experience with academics is a much, much uh, uh, stronger motivator. What do you, what, what should people who are consuming this kind of thing, because IPCC dominates, these academic institutions dominate, what should the layman do just you know, as he consumes the daily deluge of this stuff to, to sort through it? That, that's a great question. It's, I wish I had a, a clear and concise answer for it, but I think the only thing that, that really can be done is you have to become educated. You have to invest the amount of time to become educated on this issue. You cannot rely, and that's really true for most issues, unfortunately, today. You cannot rely upon what others are saying. You have to find out for yourself. If you don't, you have you know, no idea whether or not what you're relying upon is the truth. You have to investigate, you have to go look and you have to, to find out. So you have the IPCC, you know that's one source. You can come to the NIPC, the NIPCC, and get an, an, an opposing viewpoint and, and read it and look and see. Are they providing, you know, who is providing you with, with peer-reviewed scientific references? Um, does this make sense as I read this? You know, this argument makes sense and so forth. You just have to do it. There's no other way to come to you know to to come to a conclusion without acquiring knowledge. Yeah, I remember. I remember what I was going to ask before. Think about before. It's it's um the the is about the IPCC's mandate. How it has this completely skewed mandate. I just I thought of an analogy. I'm not going to ask you to endorse it, but I'm curious to see what you think of it. Uh, I mean, it's because there's there's this premise that I've, I've stressed throughout the interview that if man does it, it must be bad. You know, it must be bad for us. It must be bad for our environment, and that implies that nature is perfect, absent us, and we're this unnatural cancer on nature. The IPCC is essentially saying, "Oh well, we're changing the concentration of CO2. That must be bad. Let's figure out how bad it is." And I, I call this sometimes human racism because you assume if the human race does something, it's bad. And if, you know, anything else changed, like if, if it naturally changed, people would probably think, oh, that's fine or even it's good. So it seems like you might as well just say, well, I'll take my own race, like Jews. What if, what if someone said, well, I have, I have a study for the impact of Jews on the world and our goal is to find out how bad an impact they have, and, but mm -hmm. we're going to be balanced. So the people who say it's really bad, we're going to include them. And people say it's not that bad, we're going to include them. But you've, you've already screwed up the whole question. You're not asking the right question, and you're going you're gonna to yeah. get an answer that's bad. Yeah. You know, I, I think you could take a look at, like, well, look at the example of the polio vaccine, things like that. You know, is that bad? The man came up with that. Is that bad? No, it's extended life and all the other good things that we're doing. And, and yeah, we, we've gotten away, I think, as a society from, from calling a spade a spade. You know, some of these things that have happened, a lot of them are good. They have benefited society. Wealth has increased. Longevity of human life has increased. Quality of living for many has been increased. And we still have a ways to go in many areas, but you know we have done great as a, as a society as a whole uh, since the dawn of the industrialization. We're feeding more people. Uh, more people are living quality lives than ever before. And hopefully, hopefully, you can cross our fingers, it'll continue in the future. Well, I just, I've never heard, it's very rare to hear someone say we've done great, but that's, it's so true and it's sad that we don't have the self-esteem as a species to be proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up, but tell us uh, what what people can do to learn more about your organization and and to contribute to it if they want to. You bet. Uh, we have two websites that you can go to. There's nipccreport.org. That's the the website for the Non-Governmental International Panel on Climate Change. Or you can also go to our nonprofit company, and that is CO2 Science, and that's found at co2science.org. And both those places have a, a PayPal donate button that you're welcome to use. Love to use. It's it's not easy <laughs> being against standing against the tide. Um, you know the billions of dollars are out there, but we we're happy doing what we do, and we're glad to to wake every morning and be engaged in an issue and a topic that uh, sustains us day by day, and and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Like you said, uh, showing the benefits of uh, increasing carbon dioxide on both plants, animals, and humans. Well, I. I learn a lot from every power hour. This is one of the ones I've I've learned most from and, and can apply most to my own work. So I'm I'm really uh, grateful. Craig, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Thanks again to Craig Idso for joining us on the program. What's interesting about the philosophy we have at CIP about energy and environment and industrial progress is that it's considered very extreme by the standard of of conventional views much of which many of which to some degree or another some degree or another not pronouncing my words very well today have major elements of environmentalism by environmentalism i mean the view that the non-human environment takes precedence over the human environment. Or another another perspective is that the uh, you know that the rest of nature is a value unto itself that should be prioritized above man versus the the humanist view, which is that everything should be related to man. So your your concern about the ecosystem or a beaver or an owl that that has to be related to human beings in one form or another. So it's not that you are or aren't concerned about any particular thing, but that the concern is by the standard of, of human life. So if somebody says, well, the most important thing in the universe is that the polar bear species persist indefinitely, and we should be willing to sacrifice, let's say that required some huge sacrifice on our part. The humanist view says no, whereas the non-humanist view, the quote-unquote environmentalist view, says yes, or says, yeah, that you should definitely consider doing that. Anyway, one one thing about this is that I find that I myself accept just slivers or elements of the environmentalist view in different subtle ways. And, and the reason is because it now not 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 in the sense of I agree with them once I realize, but I, I, without realizing it, I accept them. And the reason is because We've all been indoctrinated with environmentalism. That's what we've grown up with. That's that's our default frame of reference. And I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to philosophers and economists and others who have the humanist view. So, I, and I've thought a lot about it myself and, and developed various aspects of it myself. Uh, but nevertheless, when I was a kid, for sure. That's what I grew up with, you know, the idea that man is ruining the planet. And this idea that if something is, is man-made versus non-man-made, which non-man-made is called natural, which is not 
uh, the right way of saying it because means that man is unnatural and it, it it's treated as if it's somehow alien or or bad if it's if it's uh, not if, if it's man-made um, and, and that's actually the point that that the man-made there's this prejudice against it any anything that we do vis-a-vis -vis the rest of nature we should be suspicious so if you make a bar of soap using quote-unquote chemicals now everything's a chemical so it's a ridiculous way of putting it but if, if we synthesize some new chemical compound and make soap out of it well that's suspicious and you know we probably shouldn't use it but natural soap which it's not like nature gave us soap or something like that but uh i was just at a hotel today so i'm thinking about soap if nature alleged if it's natural so-called oh well that's good that must be uh, healthy but you know imagine imagine even if that soap happens to be good for your skin it's probably not that good if you eat it or inject it into your veins so there's just this whole arbitrary bias against thing man-made things and it's it's always hypocritical because um you know everything is man-made in one way or another whether it's how we construct something or the, the or choosing the context in which to use it that's that's equally man-made but it, it's just this incredibly destructive view versus we have to look at everything in a humanist way in relation to human life and that's where i i learned so much from talking to craig Inso today because he uh for various reasons doesn't have any inherent bias against putting co2 in the atmosphere his he is completely open to the view that this could be a net positive thing and he doesn't just have any element of accepting that as, as a reasonable assumption that this is you know changing the atmosphere by 0.01 percent is somehow going to cause catastrophe so he lacks what i call human racism which is bias against the human made against the man made and as a result he has this fascinating but he's just assembled all this this fascinating data that nobody else thinks to even look for which is all the benefits of co2 which i think i said during the show is it's kind of like the equivalent of someone tells you hey there's you wake up one morning and there's a third more food around the world yeah you could imagine some way in which that would be unhealthy for some people maybe it's going to decompose who knows but basically wow that's a lot more food let's investigate all the benefits of having a third more food and if you have a third more plant food in the atmosphere which is the food of our food along with uh well, fossil fuels are the food of our food and from a different perspective from they're not what our food eats but they're what makes our food in terms of producing the energy necessary for machines to produce our food uh it, it's just if you look at it it just makes so much sense wow this, this this just by common sense we would expect this to be a big bonus and in fact it might be what people would call a negative externality of not using fossil fuels that are and it's a huge positive externality nobody's and if you read fossil fuels improve the planet i don't like talking about things in terms of externalities but if it has any use it would for sure be that whether or not you're paying for fossil fuels using them directly you are benefiting from this proliferation of plant growth around the world. So I, I myself am very excited to study this literature more. Uh, you should definitely 
check out the um, you know, CO2 Science, the website, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just very exciting to so it's very exciting to meet someone who will basically say, yeah, you're you're more right than you think you are. You're on the right track here, but there's even farther to go, and part of the learning process is, is if you get on a good track, you, you, you start adopting and applying a principle, you'll find that there's more and more power to applying that princi principle and, and working out all of its implications, and your thinking gets um, clearer and clearer. And I guess that's a good time to bring up or bring up again my new manifesto, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which I think is the best thinking I've done so far, the clearest thinking I've done so far about the relationship between fossil fuels and human life and how to communicate that to other other people. I think it's definitely, my thinking is getting clearer and clearer, and, and hopefully with guests like doc, Dr. Idso and just um, being able to interact with all the, the bright people I get to interact with, in another six months, the thinking will get that much clearer. But check out that essay at industrialprogress.com slash moral case. That's industrialprogress.com slash moral case. And, and let me know what you think. As always, you can, uh, you know, questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, send to alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to check out the website, industrialprogress.com. Uh, We've got, we're, we've been blogging every day. There's a lot of new announcements. I've a Forbes column every week, which we'll link to always at that site. There's a uh, very good new article by Eric Dennis about climate modeling at Master Resource, which we also link to. So do that and, and for sure get on the mailing list. That's just at industrialprogress.com on the front page. It's very easily, you can, you can see it very easily. Just enter in your email address and get on that list. That'll give you the updates. That, that, that'll give you the updates. Um, and also, recently we started giving away free stuff. And, and I don't just mean digital stuff. Last week, we ended up giving away about 70 I Love Fossil Fuels t-shirts free, no charge for shipping to members of the fossil fuel industry. And so if, if you want to be part of the next one, and we're doing that because <laughs> we think the shirts are awesome and we want people to... to uh, to buy a ton more than that, so it's definitely a capitalist. But nevertheless, you can get all kinds of, of cool stuff by being on that list, and of course the, the information. Anyway, that's it for today. Thanks again to Dr. Craig Idso for coming on the show. Next week we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.